as John comes. I, uh, so John Dunning and I crossed paths many moons ago at the Covenant Theological Seminary. And uh, John is the uh, director, he's the campus minister of RUF, Reformed University Fellowship at K-State. So many of our families have gotten to know John over the years. In fact, when our students graduate, I always politely uh, tell our females, yes, go meet John Dunning. But I tell the guys that I'll give them a swift kick if they do not go meet John Dunning up at K-State. So I have a great amount of respect for John and his ministry at K-State. And there is information that he brought, and after the service he'll be uh, at the information desk to answer any questions and to meet families who may be uh, sending their kids to K-State. With that said, um, I've attempted to get John in our pulpit a number of times over the last probably five years, but our schedule's never worked out, so... Thankfully, uh, we have John this morning, and John, some of you may recognize, John spoke to our youth a number of years ago for our reality weekend. Um, And so, John, thank you. It's good to have you back. Thanks for your willingness to uh, preach to us this morning. Pulpit is yours. Yeah, it it feels a little bit, I've been searching for a metaphor this week as I've gotten ready for this morning. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, It feels a little bit like we've lived in the same cul-de-sac for years but work different shifts. Um, I've got to know you a little bit from a distance, as as, uh, Pastor Chad just said, from students that were here, that grew up here, that came our way. And and Chad got connected with me, which I've loved, loved getting to know them and seeing your work in their lives come to fruit in their lives. But even before that, I served uh, as associate pastor at Oak Hills Presbyterian Church in the Johnson County suburbs for about 10 years. And so actually a number of folks that were here for college made their way our way after that for, and we're a part of our church there for a number of years. So we have actually a number of good friends that have, that have known the influence of your church and your preaching and your ministry in their lives. And I want to tell you and reassure you that the work of God in you and through you far exceeds what you may see on a day-to-day basis. And it is having impact around probably no question around the world, but certainly around this area. And I'm thankful for that. As Chad said, I'm the campus minister with a ministry called RUF, which stands for Reformed University Fellowship on the campus of Kansas State. This is our ninth year there which feels really strange to me, but it's what it is, and the Lord's been faithful and kind to us. We are on the campus, we are on campuses around the country and even overseas because of three basic commitments. We believe that the gospel is true, and the students need that gospel more than anything else. We believe that the university is a very real place where real decisions are made that are having real impact on lives for the rest of those students' lives. And we believe in the vitality and the importance of the local church and the gathering of God's people together for worship regularly. And that's why we're there, that's why we do what we do, and God has been faithful and kind to send us there. As Chad said, there's a little bit of information out on the back. If you look through some of the pictures that I have out, you may see some familiar faces. I encourage you to peruse that. If you you would like to know more about our ministry and there's nothing left on that table, uh, please grab me before we leave, and I wanna get you in touch with, keep you posted on what's happening in the life of students at Kansas State and uh, just over 80 miles west of here. If you have your Bibles, though, this morning, it's my privilege to open God's Word with you. And if you have your Bibles with you or you're faster than the person next to you, let me invite you to turn with me in them to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to consider verses 7 through 13 this morning of Ephesians chapter 3. And I'll read it and pray for us in a minute, but I want to set up the passage a little bit to sort of get the landscape for us a bit. It's mornings like these that I'm grateful that I have GPS on my phone to get where I need to go. My wife learned early in our marriage that I'm very directionally challenged. And the beauty of the GPS is this. You, you know how this works, right? You plug in the address and it tells you what you have to do next. You don't have to think. 
Like, you don't have to think about what I do next. It's gonna tell me when I have to turn and which way I have to turn and what street I'm looking for. Even if I can't see the street sign, it's gonna tell me where I need to go. But I do remember growing up in my family, I have three siblings, two older brothers and a younger sister, and we would often take road trips during the summer with, with our parents. And my siblings and I would fight over the atlas. Now, if you don't know what an atlas is, an atlas is like if you took your Google Maps and printed it out on paper and stapled it together and paged through it, you would see, um, you'd know where you need to go. We'd fight over the atlas because it was really fascinating. Now, we didn't have GPS back then. I'm, I'm that old, yes. And the reality of the situation was it gave us the opportunity to figure out where we were. Because the way the atlas works is you can see the whole state in one glance, right? And there's enough information packed into there that you can see, you can look at the exit numbers and you can look at where you, where you think you are and you can find out specifically where you are and follow your path along the way. And we, we even got pretty good at guessing how long it would take us to get to our destination. I want you to see Ephesians a little bit like an atlas. What the Apostle Paul does in this brief letter is he lays out for us the grand scope of God's saving work. And he invites us to ask ourselves, where do we find ourselves in, on that map, if you will? In chapter one, he says this, he mentions these words. He says, before the foundation of the world, part of the scope that the apostle wants us to see is before there was time even, before there was anything, what was happening. He goes on in chapter one to say this, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Not, not only does, he, does the scope that he's concerned about can mean, deal with equality, or eternity from time past and time future, but even the heavens and the earth is, is on his mind. In chapter three, he says this, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. You see the map getting bigger, don't you? As I said, throughout this entire letter, Paul in effect says to us, here's the whole map of God's saving work. And then he turns to his readers and says, here is where you are right now. Now what's interesting is when we get into chapter three, he's doing that even for himself. He places his work on this same map. And in the text before us that I want us to consider, he, he begins to explain why this matters for us right here, right now. So even as we read God's word this morning together, I want you to be asking yourself, Grace Church, where are you on this map? With all that said, I'm gonna read now from Ephesians chapter three, beginning in verse seven, and I'll read through verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all these saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Let us acknowledge together the grass withers the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray and ask for his blessing upon the reading of his word. Gracious, merciful, holy God, our prayer this morning is that by the abundance of your grace, you would send out your light and your truth. That they would lead us, they would take us to the place where you are, to the holy place, that we as your people dependent upon the blood of your son might behold you 
that we might know you and that we might be changed. Father, we pray this by your strong name, by the power of the, the, the crucified blood shed for us and by the ongoing working of the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen. The Pixar has fascinated many of us for years with its ability to ignite our imaginations by looking at the worlds it creates. Some of the worlds the Pixar movies create for us are, are very much like the world in which we live. We, we recognize people, we recognize events, we recognize occurrences, we recognize relationships. Others of them are very different from our world. You think of the movie Cars, where everything is centered on cars. And even in a movie like that, we still recognize ourselves in that world, don't we? One of the first of the bunch was, was the Toy Story series that, that began a number of years ago. And in the first one, we're, in, we're introduced to a young boy and his toys. And the magic that, the, that is created for us, that ignites our imaginations, is the magic that when the humans leave the room, the toys come to life. And they have their, kind of their own little hierarchy and ecosystem that they operate in. It's a fascinating world to watch. There's Woody, the, the favorite, the, the standard favorite, the classic cowboy with the pull string back. There's Little Bo Peep, there's the dinosaur. There's all kinds of other toys, and they have their, their own ways of relating to each other, and they, they, they play when the, when, the boys are gone, when the boy is gone. In the first movie, though, we meet Buzz Lightyear. Buzz is there, he's the new toy. He, he's a space ranger, you see. The, the little boy gets him for his birthday, and, and Buzz is flashy, he's shiny, he's got lights that turn on, he's got wings that pop out. And as soon as the little boy leaves the room, the, the other toys are fascinated by Buzz. Probably a lot of them are intimidated by him because he's the newest thing. As they talk, though, Woody, the cowboy, the old standard favorite, who certainly is probably a bit jealous at this point, says, he's not a space ranger. And Buzz shows off his wings. Click, and they pop out. And the, the, the toys back up, and they're amazed at how, how fancy he is. And Woody responds, those are plastic. He can't fly. And Buzz replies, they're trillium carbonic alloy, and I can fly. And Buzz proceeds to show off his skills, and he jumps on a ball and bounces in the air, and he flies up, and he, at one point he catches on the ceiling fan, and he, fly, he swings around on the mobile, and he flies around the room, in essence, until he falls back in place, and the toys, are, the toys just respond with an applause. They're amazed at what he can do. And out of jealousy, we hear, but we hear uh, Woody say, that wasn't flying, that was only falling with style. We know what it is to think we can fly, and we know what it is to think that maybe we're just falling with style, don't we? We know that reality. We know what it is to have great confidence and hope to say, I got this. You get out of the bed, you get out of bed in the morning and you're like, I'm up on time, I beat my alarm up, I have a good breakfast, I exercise, I read my Bible, I'm off to work, I'm having a great day. And you know what it is to hear the voice in your head another day that simply says, you're not flying, you're only falling with style. And cynicism and doubt and despair can creep in. We know what it is. You know what it is as a church, certainly, those of you who've been around a long time. You know what it is to experience growth, to experience God's grace, changing people's lives right before your eyes, transformation happening and you celebrating. And you know what it is to say goodbye to friends and loved ones. You know what it is to say goodbye to your leader, to leaders who have who've taught you the word of God in significant ways, you know the change and what that accounts for. As we look back at the passage, I wanna quickly point you to the verse 13, the very end. Because what Paul says there is he says this, I ask you not to lose heart. 
Now, Paul's circumstances are this. He's in prison. We don't know specifically where. There's several uh, educated guesses as to where he is. But what you need to know is that, that at this point in his ministry, Paul is in prison. And if you need to, I want you to imagine a beloved leader, maybe one of your pastors you learn is in jail. And even if you're like 90% sure he did nothing wrong, there's still that part of you that thinks, what do we do now? He, he's in jail. And that's where Paul is, and he's, been, he's honest about this, he doesn't hide it from his people, but he encourages them not to lose heart. The challenge of the Christian life is, is twofold, really, as a result. The challenge of the Christian life, in part, is to live honestly with our limitations, with our weaknesses, with our failures, with those voices that say, you're not flying, you're just falling with style. And at the same time, the other side of that challenge is this, to cling with hope of our calling in God's, as God's people. How do we do that? How do we acknowledge, yeah, we probably can't fly the way that we think we can, but yet at the same time live with hope. It's what I want us to consider this morning. Notice where Paul begins. I turn your attention to verses seven and eight in particular in chapter three. Excuse me. For Paul, living with honesty and living with, with, with begins with something outside of himself. Notice where, he's, where he begins in, in verse seven. His understanding is rooted in, in his own need for grace, isn't it? He says, of this gospel I was made a minister. The gospel means the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He was made a servant of a message, which means he's given his life to proclaim this message. But notice what he says next. According to the gift of God's grace which was given me. According to the gift of God's grace which was given me. In fact, a third, for a third time, if you look at verse eight, he'll use the word give again, won't he? We see, it there, we see it there in verse eight where he says, to me though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. We've heard him say that word given before, haven't we, in chapter two. If you wanna turn there, you may. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You see, when Paul uses this word gift here, he's saying simply this, this is not something I achieved or accomplished or earned. It was given to me. God's favor, his blessing, his kindness and patience with me, his servant, was completely set aside for me as a gift. It's not a payment in kind or anything remotely like it. It is simply a gift. Notice where he goes on in verse, in that same, in verse 7 and 8 as we continue on. He says this in verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... I'm the very least of all the saints. What's, what's interesting here is what he does grammatically. You see, he's actually, he makes up his own word there because he doesn't have a word to say what he's trying to say. And our English translations hit the nail on the head. But what's happening is this. Imagine the word, the, 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 the adjective good. We say the comparative of that is better. And we say the superlative is best. A little English lesson for you this morning by a math major. You're welcome. Um, good, better, best. You know how that works. Little, lesser, least. What Paul is doing here is he's taking the superlative, the extreme one, the best or the least, and he's adding to it the comparative, as if to say, I'm lester, I'm leaster, I'm bester. In other words, imagine the lowest point possible. I'm even lower than that is what he's saying compared to all of the saints. It's a bold statement, isn't it? It sounds like self-deprecation, but what, why would he say this? 
We, said, we know from other places, like 1 Corinthians 15, when he says this, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He writes this in 1 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You see, the apostle knows who he is. He knows that there was a time in his life when he, he believed wholeheartedly that his faithfulness to God meant killing Christians, these followers of Jesus that were messing everything up. He was, he was convinced that holiness was about killing Christians, and God changed his life. He is aware of his sinfulness. He's aware of his need of God's grace and that he's received God's grace fully as a gift. In fact, he goes on there in verse, I believe it's in verse seven where he says, he says this, this was given me by the working of his power. What Paul is saying is it took a miracle, literally a miracle to change my life. That same gift is what changes our lives when we believe in the gospel, when we receive the gospel. Paul speaks with an awareness of his need for grace. That's part of this path to honesty. Writer Stephen King once wrote about an interaction that he had with a very religious mom of one of his classmates. She had hired little Stevie and, one of his, and her son to help move some furniture in their home. And in the main room of the home was this giant painting of a crucified Jesus. King, King comments that every detail highlighted the brutal suffering and shame that Jesus endured. He said it was overwhelming for him. He, just, he was not a religious person. He didn't grow up going to church. But this, this poster, this painting just captivated him and he didn't know what to do with it. Eventually, the, the, the mom saw him looking at it and said, that's Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Have you been saved, Steve? Steve quickly responded that he was saved as saved could be, which he knew wasn't true. And he later reflected these words. He said he didn't think he could ever be good enough to have that version of Jesus intervene on his behalf. He saw in the suffering and shame that Jesus endured on the cross, even in this echo, in this poster, this painting, he saw there some sense that he could never be good enough to have that version of Jesus save him. He said he could see it on his face. If that guy came back, he probably wouldn't be in a saving kind of mood, King wrote. It's fascinating, isn't it? But the reality is this. Grace meets us in a place where we think we have to be a certain amount of good in order to be saved. And it turns that on its head and it underscores our need. Part of living life with honesty is acknowledging our need for grace. But there's something that he adds to this in the same section in verses eight and nine. Not only do we see the need of grace, but we see the task of grace. Notice again, look with me again at verses eight and nine. There he says this, or at the, at the end of, uh, there we go, uh, there we go, okay, sorry, at the end of verse eight, sorry, I got, lost my place. He says that this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The task of grace, because of what grace is, is to preach the gospel. That's what it was for Paul, to preach to the Gentiles and to bring to light for everyone. Now, if you, if you notice, look back um, in, in verse six, we didn't read this earlier, but look back at verse six. He says this, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The task is to make the word known because the task is not simply about me and Jesus, the task is about us as his people and all who would call in the name of Jesus. 
He writes in Colossians chapter 1, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, his message is this. Inherent in God's grace is the reality that this grace takes us to other people. It leads us. The task of grace is to lead us almost automatically to consider those around us who are desperately in need of the same grace. You see what Paul's doing. He begins with himself, and he says, this grace changed my life. And it changed my life in such a way that I can't look at anybody else around me with the same as I did before. And it draws Jews and Gentiles together into one body. And then in verse 10, he gives this one body the name, doesn't he? It's the name church. This is the task of grace that we have as a church. Do you see what he's doing? He's speaking to us this morning, Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church. He's speaking to us to say, you are gathered by grace and you are, you are gathered by grace, which means you have a need of grace and you are called to proclaim the same gospel of grace. He wants us to see the reality of the church in this world, the gathered people of God who are, who are what they are only by the work of God's grace in our lives. We can start where, all, where Paul starts, can't we? Do you see your need for grace? To profess to be a Christian, you simply need to acknowledge two basic things, that you are a sinner and that Jesus is your Savior. And the beauty of this profession is this. The Lord gathers people in the midst of their weaknesses and he calls us in spite of our strengths. Let me say that again. The Lord Jesus calls us in the midst of our weaknesses and he gathers us in spite of our strengths. He gathers us in our lies, in our deceptions, in our greed, in our lust, and in our pride, in our arrogance, in our distance from one another, in our desire to hide and keep secrets. And he gathers us in spite of our strengths. He gathers us in spite of our education, in spite of what our bank accounts tell us is true about us, in spite of our income, in spite of our net worth, in spite of our church attendance, in spite of our money given, in spite of any, the best thing that we could do in this life, he still calls to us by his grace. It's what shapes us. Beloved, the world around us doesn't need your empty attempts at being perfect. The world around you doesn't need your righteousness because it will never be enough. It will at best leave the world where they are already. They can find that on their own, they don't need that and it will lead them nowhere. The campus here in town, like every other campus around the country, doesn't need your perfection. They need you to know that you have a need of grace, that you are gathered by grace and by grace alone. And the beauty of this passage, as we've said, is that we, we cannot miss this, that it drives us to other people, it actually drives us to community, it drives us to church, to the place where we shouldn't have to pretend where we shouldn't have to, to act like we've got it all together when we don't. To act like our kids always make sense, to act like our spouses always make sense, to act like our roommates always make sense, because they don't. You don't have all the answers, and it's okay. 
You are gathered by grace, and it's what's shaping you, and it's what drives us to the world around us, to love the world faithfully with the gospel. That's how we begin to learn honesty. The honesty that we need to, to face life such as it is. People coming into your home don't, you need, don't need you to vacuum every time you come. Trust me, they don't. I know the pressure of like, you know, we have students in our home as often as we can. And I know the pressure of wanting everything to be perfect and everything to be put away, them not to see the clutter that's inherently everywhere. They don't need that. They don't need my clean carpets. They need the dog hair on the carpet is what they need. They need to know that that's really life because, because at some point, the young people in your lives, whether your children or someone else's children, at some point they may be married and have kids. And it will get hard for them. And they need to know that it was hard for you. They desperately need to know that you need grace and that you are shaped by grace and that that's what gathers you together as a church. And together we need to see that that can drive us to love people well, even in our weakness. But the other side of this passage is that hope still remains. Not only because we're gathered by grace, but because we are gathered for glory. It's where he goes at the end. If you look again at verse 13, notice where he ends what I read. He says, I'm what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is, Paul is acknowledging that in the weirdness of his situation, even, that he, even though he is in jail and they are despairing, he says, this is for your beauty, for your goodness, for your truth to be on display. How on earth does this work in the midst of our discouragement? Look back with me again at verse 10. He says that all of this is happening so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So that the manifold wisdom of God, so that the multifaceted, multicolored, beautiful wisdom of God might be on display. Now, if you, if you look back again at verses 9 and 11, you'll notice what sandwiches this, don't you? He says this, he mentions in verse 9, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And look again at verse 11. Um, where he, or, yeah, verse 11, he says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's plan all along is the way that things are working out. Nothing can thwart his will. Nothing can get in the way of it. There are no obstacles that will, that will slow it down or make it cease. What's he saying here, though? I grew up in what I would say is probably the MTV generation, when, when MTV still existed and still played music videos. And I remember seeing early on as a kid this, this, this video of an artist, kind of this rock artist, if you will, who did performance art. And he had these giant canvases that were taller than he was. And in each hand, he had three or four paintbrushes. And there were buckets of paints of all kinds of brilliant colors on the floor. And the, the, the loud music would play, and he would dip the, the, the brushes in the paint, and he would flick it around the room, and it would be a mess everywhere. And he'd be painting this canvas, and his arms would be swirling, and he'd be switching brushes without even thinking about it. And you just see this, this mass chaos of this, this form to begin to take shape on the canvas before him. And then he would, what he would do is he'd add to that a black, a black or brown, a dark color, and he'd cover the, cover the colors up with the dark color. And when he was finished, he would stand back and you realize that there's a perfect painting of Jimi Hendrix upside down, or Kurt Cobain, or John Bonham, or Robert Plant. And you, and you, you think about this picture of this artist going to town. He knows exactly where he's going, but you have no idea where he's going. And it looks like chaos, it looks like mayhem, it looks like madness. But then he stands back when he's done and says, see, you can see exactly what I want you to see. 
That's what the apostle is telling us that God is doing through us, through the church. For some reason, this is what he wants to do. That reason is so that his wisdom can be on display. So we can glory and rejoice, not in ourselves, but in his plan from ages past into all eternity, the work that he is doing. Now interestingly, he has this curious phrase there. He says that, it's going, that, this, that this would now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now lots and lots of ink has been spilled trying to figure out who the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are. I don't have the secret answer this morning, I'm sorry. But I actually think the key to understanding part of what he's saying here comes actually not in, the, not in the rulers and authorities, but in the phrase that follows. Because in the heavenly places shows up repeatedly in the, in the book of Ephesians. In verse one, he says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That Jesus has been seated at his right hand in the heavenly places in one verse 20. In chapter two, he says that he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do not wrestle against flesh and blood, he says in chapter six, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I don't think he's referring to ideologies. I don't think he's, work, he's referring specifically to evil systems or anything of the like, though there may be some relationship to that. What he's referring us to when he's saying, this is on, what I'm doing through you is gonna be on display for the, the beings in the heavenly places is simply that. That the angels, good and bad, that our friends and our enemies, all those watching from in ways that we cannot see them now, would behold the very wisdom of God itself. Beings that we might be tempted to fall down and worship if we were actually able to see them visibly will be stunned to silence at the wisdom of God through you and through me. Can you, can you grasp that? That the glory that awaits us is that God's wisdom would be on display through people like us. I know what you did this week because I know what I did this week. Not always our finest moment, is it? But God is saying, I'm gonna put my wisdom, my beauty, my goodness and truth on display through you and through what I'm doing in you and through you. But he adds even more to this. There's more to this glory. Look at verse 12. It's almost mentioned as a side comment, but we can't miss it. He says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we have access. Boldness, confidence. It's not arrogance or flippance, it's not, but it's not, neither is it cowering fear. We have the ability to approach God, to enjoy God by approaching him because of this access. This is where the people of God are. We all have that friend who says what is, whatever is on his mind or her mind, right? That makes us embarrassed when they say it in front of other people. Some of you are that friend, by the way. But we all have that friend and we think, you know, in the, is there not part of us that's at least a little bit jealous that we can't get away with saying what they say in public? That's the boldness and access that's here. If you saw, you've ever seen the movie Anna and the King, it's sort of the non-musical version of the, the musical The King and I from long, long ago. But Anna, Anna the King tells a story of a, of a British school teacher who's brought to the kingdom of Siam to teach the king's 30 some odd children, to, to educate them because he's, he's advanced thinking and he wants them to be knowledgeable in the ways of the West. And what's fascinating is they set the table for the, for this, the movie by explaining some of the, some of the exposition that happens early on in the movie. You see, women are not allowed in the king's presence 
And so they, have to, they call her sir throughout the movie, as if that would change who she is into being a man. The other interesting thing that happens is because the king is seen as a deity, it's, it's court policy that when, when, especially when he's on the throne or in his throne room, no one's head can be the same height as the king. And so when he gets down on the floor off of the dais, all of his ministers and counselors fall to the floor to keep their heads lower than his. And in fact, you know, they walk in the room and you see them bowing down to him on more than one occasion. And he gets up and he moves around and, and he moves freely, but they're watching him with every eye and making sure that they're following all the protocol because their God is in front of them. But at one point in the movie, the kids are, kids are upset and one of the little girls, one of his daughters, the, the door, the, the back of his throne room opens and she runs down the middle of the throne room while all the counselors, all the important officials of the kingdom are on their faces before the king and she runs into his arms. That's the access that you and I have. That we don't have to worry about protocol, that we don't have to worry about traditions or expectations with God. That because of Jesus, the arms are open and we can, we can run into his arms with boldness, with confidence that he will hear us and that he will respond. You see what this means? It doesn't mean that we, we ignore harsh words spoken, that we ignore the confusion or anxiety that we're feeling about the present and the future. It doesn't mean that suffering has no pain in this world, very much the opposite. But what it does mean that one day, even your worst suffering will be a part of this beautiful piece of art that declares to the heavenly beings that God has been in charge of your life the entirety of the time. Your suffering is not without meaning or significance. You may not have it, in, you may not find the meaning in this life, but it is not without meaning or significance. We live in a world and in a culture in which how we speak and how we live matters. We feel the pressure of needing to try to say the right things at the right time all the time. But the access that described here is invites us to run to our Father, not worrying about saying the wrong things, but to turn to Him wherever we are. God's wisdom is, is on display through you and will be on display forever, and we have access. We are, beloved, we are gathered by grace, and we are called to glory. We lose grace, and we're left with a false confidence, an arrogance, a pride. We lose glory, and we miss the big picture of what God is doing. Grace and glory through the church and through us. Beloved, you know that this is how God works, right? If you don't, let me invite you to read the book of Genesis and see how God works through people like you and me. Because there we read about Noah, who God chose to save the world through him, and what did he do in response? He got drunk and naked. Abraham and Sarah, who more than once, Abraham lied about his own wife to save his own neck and to prosper. That's who God chose to lead to be the father of his people. A guy like that. We think of people like Gideon and Samson and others whose morality was questionable at best and most for many times in their lives. And even this, this passage from 1 Samuel 22, when David is on, King David, the hero of God's people, is on the run from King Saul because his life is in danger. And this isn't one of David's missteps, but notice what happens in 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So maybe if you're in debt this morning, you belong, you're right where you belong. 
Maybe if you're bitter in soul, you're right where you belong. This isn't not the place for you. How's that for double negatives? This is the place for you. It's what scripture tells us time and again. This is, these are the people that God is gathering and this is the glory to which he calls us because it's his. I want to end with this. Flannery O'Connor has a number of short stories where she depicts in very stark ways self-righteousness and arrogance and people who miss the point. One of her short stories was called Revelation is this glimpse into this life of a self-righteous, judgy, preachy woman who looks down on virtually everyone in her life. Near the end of the story, she has this vision of souls going to heaven, and she's stunned into silence. O'Connor writes this, a visionary light setting in her eyes, she saw the stream as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through the field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling towards heaven. Listen to this, battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a drive of people who she recognizes once, who those like herself had always had a little of everything. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been, for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Beloved, what a picture of the heaven, of heaven, of the celebration of the throng going up, the freaks and the lunatics, jumping and clapping, leaping like frogs, and even the self-righteous whose virtues are being burned away. Beloved, pursue the honesty that God calls you to. Pursue it by knowing your need for grace, because you indeed are gathered by grace. And never forget that you're gathered for glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that the gospel would never be mere hyperbole for us. I pray that even as it may sound too good to be true, that in our lostness and in our weariness and our anger and our frustration and our hurt and our fear and our doubt, that wherever we find ourselves this morning, that you could still pursue us and find us and take us somewhere and use us for your glory. Father in heaven, may that be true for us every day forward. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.